there's a legend at the source of the river that runs through Paris. The origin of the Seine is in deep Burgundy, and it's a Gallo-Roman goddess named Sequana, and it was she who eventually morphed into the Seine. Elaine Cholino helps us fathom the river that defines Paris in a little bit. Germany is one of the lowest unemployment rates in Europe. We'll hear how they make things work from a panel of German guides. If you're out of a job in Germany, you're not hopeless. There is a much stronger welfare system that backs you up. And if you have trouble telling a Belgian from a Hollander, we'll hear what these Benelux neighbors think sets them apart from each other. It's very nice also that in Belgium, rules are a little bit less important. Belgians are more, yeah, more modest. Insider looks at Belgium and the Netherlands, the German way to run a country, and the river that defines Paris. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A little romance, a friendly rivalry, and a reality check are all on today's agenda for Travel with Rick Steves. In a moment, we'll hear what makes the Low Country neighbors of Belgium and the Netherlands different from each other. And in a bit, Paris correspondent Elaine Chalino explains how important the River Seine is to France. It also gives Paris its romantic vibe with its intimate and accessible waterfront. And later in the hour, we'll explore the German example for tackling society's major issues. These days, in Europe, you hardly know when you've crossed a border. But when you get to know each region, it's clear cultural differences are as distinct and strong as ever. It's fascinating that even as Europe continues to unite, the differences between the various regions remain so strong. The historic nucleus of the European Union was a trio of little countries known as Benelux, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. And while it's a very small area, it's fascinating in its complexity. We're joined in the studio by a guide from Belgium and another from the Netherlands to explore the cultural differences between their two countries. Alan Janzing is a guide in the Netherlands, and Hilbrun Weiss is from Brussels, where he teaches at the European School of Communication. He teaches history and politics, and he works as a tour guide. Hilbrun and Ellen, thanks for joining us. Thanks Happy for having me. Now, Ellen, you uh, live in the Netherlands, and you work as a guide in Amsterdam. What's your family's uh, history? Are, are you like, Have you been Dutch forever? Or what's the yes, story? I've, been, I've been Dutch forever, but um, my grandfather was a German. Uh-huh. So they came over from Germany um, to the Netherlands, and they settled in Brabant, which uh-huh. is the south of the Netherlands. Uh-huh. And it's a province that was divided when the two nations of the Netherlands and Belgium were created. Brabant. So you have, yes, so you have North Brabant, which is part of the Netherlands, and you have South Brabant, which is in Belgium. And so, you, land, you ended up in the Netherlands. Yes, yes. Was that a blessing or a curse? Um a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And Hilbrun, I... you call Belgium your home. And how did you end up there? Because you sound like you have an American accent to me. Well, yes. My parents are of Dutch extraction, in fact. But mm-hmm. with NATO, um, we ended up in, uh, in Brussels. That's where I grew up uh-huh. and have managed to stay. So you are a European if you live in, in, in Belgium, because yes. then you're, you're caught up there in all the EU excitement. Now, when you think about the low countries... Once it was all the same, wasn't it? Uh, the Low Countries, the Spanish Netherlands. The Spanish Netherlands were separate from the Dutch Republic, but before the Spanish Netherlands became Spanish, yeah. we were all part of the Holy Roman Empire. And then what happened? Because to me, it's kind of a, a cultural divide between Belgium and Holland today. You've got uh, French-speaking Walloons, and you've got Germanic-speaking Dutch. Yep. You've got Catholics and Protestants. You've got South-facing and German-facing. 
Is that a cultural divide of some sort, Ellen? It is. The language barrier has been there for a thousand years. It's not a part of Belgium. When Belgium was created as a nation in 1830, it was not that then the language barrier started to exist. It was already there. Long before. So Long this is before. like cultural tectonic plates yes. coming together right here. From Roman-speaking tribes heading east and Germanic-speaking tribes heading west. And so they joined up. So you had this language barrier from Roman-speaking and Germanic-speaking, which is more or less where today's language barrier is in Belgium. So we're kind of talking about between the Netherlands and Belgium, but also within Belgium we've got this split with the north being more culturally and linguistically tied with the Netherlands and the south being more connected with France. Yes, because of the language and, of course, because French has always been the dominant language throughout the Middle Ages when you had people who wanted to be anything in life had to be able to speak French and later on it, it stayed the dominant language in the industrial era And Flemish was the local dialect. So that's uh, if the man comes in to fix your door, he's going to speak Flemish. Yep. But if the, the the guy who runs the city and owns the bank, he's going to speak French. Yep. Hilbrun, if you, if you want to have a historically in the in Belgium, is that the case? If you want your kid to be a meet a meet a, a very important person, they should speak French. That isn't true today. No, it but was true in the 19th century. Historically, right. Wallonia spoke Walloon. The elite of the nation spoke French because they were of nobility. French has replaced Latin as the, the dominant language in much of Europe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the cultural differences between the people in Belgium and the people in the Netherlands. We're joined by Ellen Janssing from the Netherlands and Hilbern Bijs from Belgium. When we think about, we've been talking about uh, sort of the origins of these countries, but we, we have this situation today where we've got uh, the Netherlands, which is... Dutch-speaking, and the northern half of, of Belgium, which is Flanders, right? Flem is that That's exactly, correct. Is that the same language? The language is formally the, the same. In Belgium, when you go to school, you go to a class called Dutch, Netherlands. Uh -huh. The way that in America, when you go to school, you don't learn American 101, you go to English 101. Oh, it's called Nederlands? It's called Nederlands. Why don't they just call it Flemish? Because it's the Flanders. We it? share the lexicon. We share the dictionary. Okay. If you read the dictionary, which is produced for the Netherlands and Belgium collectively, the only thing you'll see is annotations in the definition that will say used regionally or applied in Belgium this way and in the Netherlands okay. that way. So what are the Flemish-speaking people, the Nederlandish-speaking people of Belgium? How do they relate to the, to the Dutch? What is the cliches? What are the jokes and so on? Ooh. Hey, um, <laughs> uh, hey. we'll, let the, we'll let the Belgian talk here for a minute first, okay? I'll preface this by saying I studied in the Netherlands. I have Dutch origins. I, I really don't have to side with any of this. Okay. But I have a nice anecdote with two friends who met. One was Belgian and one of them was Dutch. And the Belgian tells the Dutchman, he says, Do you know upon our northern border, that's the end of culture? To which the Dutchman responded, Yes, that's true. But on our southern border, that's the end of intelligence. Ooh. <laughs> There we okay. go. Okay. <laughs> and Ellen, what about you? You're from the Netherlands. How do the Dutch think of the Belgians and, and what's a joke or a, some little insight into the cultural differences? Well, there are many things that we like. And what well, say on the plus side, we love the Belgian sense of humor, which is kind of surreal. Huh. Sometimes we don't even understand it. They definitely have a different sense of humor than the Dutch have. And we sort of admire that because it's sort the of The Dutch are very... Surreal frank and very straightforward yes. and very matter-of-fact. Yes. I've yes. had a Dutchman say, I've been with him, and he says, you know, it's it's exhausting for us to carry on a conversation. Let's just not talk with each other and not be stressed out about it. 
Right. So to me, that was so Dutch. <laughs> a, 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 a Belgian might yes. be a little more. Yes. Uh, no, uh, Belgians are more. They like to keep themselves more to themselves. Are more modest, and you can experience this when you travel there. For instance, you're an American and you're in Belgium, and you want to ask something. It's always polite to ask. Do you speak English? Yeah. When you're in Flanders, they will say, "Oh, I don't know. Yes, maybe a little bit." And then you start a conversation, and you find out that they're perfectly, perfect, perfectly yeah. well with English. <laughs> When you go to the Netherlands and you ask there, um, excuse me, do you speak English? They say, yeah, of course. Right. So there you have the difference. Like Belgians are more, yeah, more modest and the Dutch are more assertive. More assertive. That's often described as self-effacing, the Belgians are. Okay. But it's it's very nice also that in Belgium, rules are a little bit less important. Well, it's more Germanic in the north. It's sort of a low-country showdown right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Hilburn Buys from Brussels and Ellen Janzing from Amsterdam are telling us what distinguishes the neighbor countries of Belgium and the Netherlands from one another. The Dutch are famous to be frugal. They say if the best way to make a <laughs> wire in the Netherlands is to give two Dutch boys a pen- one penny and they'll fight over it and stretch it into a wire. Do you have any jokes from Belgium about the Netherlands and their frugality, or, or are they seen as frugal from Belgium? It's a reputation that the Dutch carry. It is not something that Dutch behavior necessarily Deserves. replicates. Yeah. Dutch people go on holiday like everybody yeah. else. They spend money. They, uh, I read a number of years ago that the Netherlands per capita gives more to charitable organizations than other countries. In the end, the reputation may stem out of a historic period. The Dutch 17th century was the, the heyday of, of Dutch history. Now, this is a 17th century. Culture comes to Europe in the 18th century, when we formalize the way that we eat and all these things. In the meantime, the Dutch create for the first time in the history of the world a market economy that makes everybody rich. That's true. And they're rich, but they haven't the culture yet because they haven't established the etiquette. That would make perfect sense that they get that reputation of just being just kind of smart with their money. Yes, and so I don't know if the reputation of the Dutch, which is to be frugal and loud and little bit boisterous and, mm-hmm. and such. I don't know how much of it has been inherited from the history of the 17th century and mm-hmm. how much of it really comes from experiences that we recently had. It sounds like that. a heritage of the past. Perhaps. Ellen, I think but, uh, Hilburn's neighbors in Belgium, their great-great-grandparents might have a, a picture of some saint or some king on the wall. And in the Netherlands, your great-great-great-grandparents would have a picture of food or beautiful silverware or pewter. Civilians. It it celebrates hard work, industriousness, and the little wealth that you get because you're a a frugal and good work ethic society. Exactly. You had in the 17th century, there was immense wealth, and not only for the ruling classes, but for the middle classes as well. Uh, They wanted to spend this and they wanted to show this off, this wealth. So they bought pictures, they bought paintings, they commissioned paintings. In the Rijksmuseum, there's a painting by Jan Steen of a a baker getting all these fresh rolls out out of the oven. This painting was commissioned by the baker and hung in the bakery. Now, before that, it was unheard of that a baker would have a painting in his shop. That did not exist. It was only for aristocracy and yeah. ruling classes. But in the 17th century, this wealth in the Dutch Republic was created by citizens and by merchants and by traders. 
And this was a big middle class. A middle class thing. Who spend their money in that way. And for a lot of travelers, you go to the Netherlands and you say, well, come on, where's your Rubens? Where's your Michelangelo? Where's your Valesquez? And really, it's middle class art, a lot of no-name artists, not preachy. And you mustn't forget that the inception of the separation between Belgium and the Netherlands, and the inception of this creation of the 17th century was the iconoclasm. Religious representations weren't tolerated by the Dutch Reformation. Ah. So suddenly, paintings remain moralistic, but no longer use Christian subjects. Yes, and again, there was a cultural divide, but there was also some form of tolerance, which was in that day and age, in the 17th century, it was extremely tolerant because Catholicism was not prosecuted. It was not the dominant uh, religion. Protestantism was the dominant religion, but Catholicism was still allowed, as long as they did it not in full view, and they hid their churches. Everybody knew that there were Catholic churches. Everybody knew that they were there. They were just hidden behind a normal facade. You know, it was probably better for business not to persecute them. We've been talking about the cultural differences between the Belgians and the Dutch with Ellen Janssing and Hilbrun Bijs. Hilbrun and Ellen Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Rick. you, Rick. We get a close-up of Germany and how its citizens view their country in just a bit. But first, Elaine Shalino is back with us on Travel with Rick Steves. She brings us a fresh way to look at the Seine as the river that made Paris. We're at 877-333-7425. It's probably the most romantic river in the world. As longtime Paris resident Elaine Shalino puts it, the Seine encourages us to dream, to linger, to flirt, to fall in love. Or at least to fantasize that falling in love is possible. Elaine writes for the New York Times, and she's its former Paris bureau chief. She describes her decades-long love affair with the river that winds through the heart of Paris in her latest book. It's called The Seine, The River That Made Paris. Elaine, bonjour. Thank you for having me on again, Rick. It's really a pleasure, an honor, indeed. Thank you. Well, I love Paris, and I have great respect for the importance of getting a little deeper into France and Paris. And if we can uh, have a nice conversation with somebody who has spent a lifetime enjoying it and getting into it and living and working there, it's always just great. And looking through your book on the Seine, it occurred to me, if the book is like a story, the main character is a woman. In fact, there are many songs that have been written about the Seine that call her carnal and sexual and sensual because the origin of the Seine is in deep Burgundy, and it's a goddess, a Gallo-Roman goddess named Sequana, and it was she who eventually morphed into the Seine. Huh. Gallo-Roman. What do we mean by that? Gallo-Roman means when the Romans came to France and conquered France and established their rule over the Gauls. So the or Gauls were the, the people Celts. there before, yes. the Celtic before. people. Yeah, exactly. So that, and you can go to the, the source of the Seine. I mean, it's a long river. What is it? 240 miles long. And um, you can go to the source way up uh, in Burgundy. And what do you find? Well, you find a very boring plain in the middle of nowhere. And in fact, it's a part of the country where the GPS doesn't work. So you wander around looking for the sources of the Seine. There's more than one source. There are seven little springs that bubble up from the ground and a lot more when when it's springtime and, and there's lots of rain. 
And uh, it's not a river there. It's just literally a lot of mushy ground. And the authorities have channeled these springs into the beginnings of a stream. And it's that tiny little stream that then morphs into a mighty river. The Seine River is, I guess I said 200, it's like almost 500 miles long going through France. Yes. And, um, but you weren't wrong because you know what? If it were a straight line, it would be about 250 miles. Oh, there's where I, okay. So it's meandering through France. When we think about, especially go back to medieval or older times, the role it played in history, sum up how the Seine was really, in so many ways, the bloodstream of France as it was becoming uh, a nation. Well, let's start with Paris. Paris would not have ever been created had it not been for the Seine. The city of Paris was created on the little island, the Ile de la Cité, in the middle mm-hmm. of the Seine. And it was because you could protect the uh, inhabitants because you could build these very primitive bridges. You could build walls so that invaders couldn't come. You know, When the Vikings came, the Vikings would come and go and... Uh, the city of Paris was able to repel them in part because the... Um, the natural fortification. Uh, there. It was a natural fortification, yeah. precisely. And and that's how the Seine started out. And then, of course, later it became a river of transport. Goods moved along the Seine from far east of Paris all the way to the sea. Now, you first came to Paris back in 1978. What did the yes, river... when I was about two years old. That's right, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. as, a, as mm-hmm. a very small child. How did the river impact you in your earliest memories of Paris? I came to Paris by accident when I was a very junior correspondent for Newsweek magazine based in Chicago. I had had a husband back then, but one day he came home and said he was leaving, and I gave him half of everything, including the um, BMW. And then a few months later, he was married again, and I took off and went to Paris as a junior correspondent for Newsweek magazine. And I arrived with no friends, no lovers, no sources, very bad French. But every day I would walk from our very fancy bureau in the 8th arrondissement on the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré across one of the rivers to my apartment in the 7th arrondissement. And I would stand in the middle of the river Mm. every day and I would look out west and watch the sun fall behind the Eiffel Tower. And I'd say to myself... It's going to be okay. Mm. And the Sen just gave me comfort, as rivers often do. That's a beautiful thing. And, and, and Paris certainly has the romantic embankment and the beautiful bridges and the skyline on both sides to sort of uh, encourage that sort of comforting romantic approach. That's why it's the setting for so many romantic movies, Rick, right? That's it. (laughs) We're tracing the history and the role of the Seine right now with Elaine Cholino. And Elaine's book is The Seine, The River That Made Paris. Her website is elainecholino.com. That's spelled S-C-I-O-L-I-N-O. So we talked about the Seine being 400 and some miles long, but eight miles of it goes through Paris. Let's talk for just a minute about that most famous stretch of the river, really. We know it because of this really impressive embankment, but I'm fascinated by the days before the embankment when it was really just a a mucky river bank that the the city was built upon. What is the embankment? uh, How did that change things for Paris and the Seine? Until about the 19th century, Paris was very pastoral, and you could actually walk into the Seine. You could bring your animals into the Seine. And there are wonderful, wonderful paintings for those of your listeners who love French art in the Musée Carnavalet, the Museum of the City of Paris. 
But it's almost like a journalist's report to look at these paintings and see what daily life was like with people washing their clothes, with people fishing, with people having their boats, with bringing their cows and their horses into the river so that there was a real personal and intimate connection with the river. There was no boundary between the bank and the river. And that, of course, changed when the embankments were built and and Paris became what you would call a mineralized or concretized Mm. city. And that's a huge step in the development of the city. And for us romantics, it makes it possible to have little bookstalls lining the riverfront, so evocative and, and just so delightful. What do the bouquinistas mean to you? Well, you say the word bouquiniste, which means booksellers, but many of the bouquinistes now make their money by selling trinkets. You know, it's really hard to sell old books. People right. even buy old books, even buy beautiful antique books uh, on the Internet, and that has really hurt the bouquinistes. So a lot of mm. them sell kind of crummy... It's kind of tacky touristic copies. Uh, posters Yeah, but and y- stuff. you can still find wonderful old engravings and old newspapers and old life magazines in Paris Match. Mm-hmm. But I I feature in the book one character, Jackie Galois, who only sells books. And I loved the fact that that he will not compromise by selling keychains or tiny miniature, you know, miniature Eiffel Towers or uh, placemats. Elaine, does the the city government recognize the um, heritage value of these uh, traditional bookstalls and help uh, in any way for this spirit to survive in the days of ordering online? Oh, yes. Well, you have to get uh, approved by the city to be a bouquiniste. You don't pay Mm -hmm. any rent, Mm -hmm. and you have to follow all these rules. You can only take a certain amount of time as vacation, and you're Mm -hmm. supposed to be present every day. Mm -hmm. But there's not an open subsidy for the uh, bouquiniste, and the bouquinistes themselves are trying to get recognized by UNESCO, the cultural arm of the -hmm. United Nations, as a cultural heritage site so that they can be validated and enriched and appreciated more because there are a lot fewer bouquinis than there used to be. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the whole Seine experience. These are these, uh, they're little green metal um, bookstalls, basically, and they lock them up and then they pop up the lid and and they're just sort of a laid-back, classy old uh, antique bookstore in miniature. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elaine Cholino, and her book is The Seine, The River That Made Paris. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Caroline's calling in from Lake Forest Park in Washington State. Caroline, thanks for your call. Thank you. Hello, Rick and Elaine. When I spend time there for work or leisure, I like walking along the, um, the keys of the sign for just the peace and just to see local life come alive. It's uh, cooling in the evenings, especially when they have the heat waves. And I experienced that when I would walk back to the apartment I was staying in by the Musée d'Orsay from Il San Wi, where my client is. And it would just be beautiful at sunset um, as the sign would kind of just closed down for the night, but it was still cooling, and it was the natural air conditioning of the area. And I think it attracts people because you notice that at sunset, there's these wonderful picnic dinners spread out on the banks. Did you notice that, Caroline? Uh, they're just right on, the, right on the banks of the Seine. Yes, I would see the people, you know, just sitting there, and they would have whatever they might be eating for dinner at home, but because they live in these small old buildings that 
have no AC, they would just bring their dinner out to the river and spread out a tablecloth and they would have like almost a formal dinner, but on the river banks. And it was very unique. You don't see that much anywhere else. So it was, it was just a little piece of seeing very, something very Parisian um, on the banks that, you know, meanwhile you could hear people above eating in the restaurants, which is more touristic. I love it. Um, Elaine, did you, I'm sure you've noticed the wonderful dining that goes on. And just uh, Well, it's so interesting. Caroline makes an extraordinarily good point because she talks about local life coming alive and how cool it was on the river when people were sweltering in their apartments. This was last summer when we had an extraordinary heat wave where it was over 100 degrees, and I was working at home in my an air-conditioned apartment because most people don't have air conditioning in Paris. If you work in a fancy law firm like my husband does, um, then he had air conditioning, but we didn't. So you go out to the Seine and you basically share life with other people. You know, one of my favorite words in the French language is partage or sharing. And you can eat and drink on the Seine, but you can also, as Caroline mentioned, but you can also dance on the Seine. You can mm. have salsa and tango lessons for free on the Seine. And what's more romantic than dancing on the banks of the river on a swelteringly hot I night? I love it. Caroline, thanks for your call. You're welcome. And we've got Lynn on the line, from actually from Paris. Lynn, uh, you're in Paris. Uh, Elaine was just talking about dancing on the Seine. Has that ever been part of your joy of the riverbank in Paris? Yes, um, I was walking down the Seine one time, and to my great surprise, I saw all these people dancing the tango. And apparently this little area is always used for dances on a certain night, and it's just oh, it's charming, uh, and especially when it's unexpected. Hmm. So it's always there for your listeners if they want to stop by and see these people dancing. I love the energy that Paris has created on the banks of the Seine. It, it used to be... Uh what would be considered by a lot of drivers a, a critical uh, artery for the the motorways. But uh, they decided to block that off, no more cars. In the summer, they even move in sand and make a beach, don't they? Well, they call it Paris-Plage, and they started that, oh, gee, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10, I don't know. And they just cart that sand in there, and being from Miami, it does not look like Miami at all. <laughs> but they do have the chairs out there, and you can relax and the um, Parisians enjoy it, and I think it's there because a lot of people just can't get away, so it was a way to make them feel like they were having a mini little yeah. vacation rest. One of my favorite experiences in Paris lately is uh, getting one of those uh, bikes that they rent really, really almost free on the streets and uh, biking along the bike paths and the pedestrian paths along the river past all the little makeshift bars and trampolines and palm trees in boxes and uh, people with their kids on little climbing walls, and it's just a beautiful slice of Parisian life. Elaine, is that considered a success for the people of Paris? It's really complicated, Rick, because some people don't like the fact that so much of the roadway along the Seine has been pedestrianized. If you've got a restaurant along the Seine or if you're the bouquiniste, you don't like that all the traffic has been moved to the upper bank and you've got created extraordinary traffic jams and incredible density of pollution. So from their point of view, it's a terrible thing. However, if you go to the lower banks and you're a bike rider or you're a jogger or you have a little bar down below, you are thrilled that there is no traffic there and that you own the river. 
In the past, what was essentially a four-lane highway, two at the river level and two up above, is now a two-lane highway with the same amount of traffic because the river level one is just for bikers and pedestrians. That's right. And so at rush hour, high up, people get really angry. You might think that you were in New York City. All over Europe, it seems like city governments are almost intentionally frustrating drivers and favoring bikers and pedestrians and people who use the the metro. Hey, Lynn, thanks for your call, and and, uh, enjoy your uh, magic hours on the Seine River. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Elaine Cholino, and her book is The Seine, The River That Made Paris. I love when you wrote, Elaine, about taking a, a river cruise down the Seine, and you made it very clear you're not really a cruise lover, but you wanted to see the Seine from this vantage point. You call the Seine the Main Street of France. So you basically took this cruise from Paris down the Main Street of France all the way to the the port of Le Havre. Uh, Take us on that cruise just for a second. What was it like cruising down the river? And then uh, what do you find when when the river hits the, the ocean? Well, there are a number of cruise liners now that are running river cruises on the Seine River. You start in Paris and then go west, not all the way to Le Havre, but quite a ways And it's a great way to see the river because you watch as the river out of Paris, it becomes wild again. I mean, you could be in Mm. the Amazon, it seems, because Mm. you're just surrounded by green and by cliffs. It's just a magical perspective. Mm. So it's quite idyllic going through. It's a tame, very slow-moving river, which also adds to the feeling of tranquility and peace. And along the way, you've got some quite nice sights. I, I would imagine the riverboats stop in Rouen. Yes, and and a lot of Americans don't go to Rouen, but it's really a wonderfully undiscovered city. And you can get there very quickly by train. I mean, it took us a long time to get there by boat, but it's more than just Joan of Arc and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the cathedral. There are just wonderful corners of it that I recommend to your listeners. It's a trip back in time. The vernacular architecture of the city is just beautifully preserved and cobbled lanes and lovely shops and and beautiful family-run restaurants and lots of traditions. Elaine, when you think of how romantic the river is, I mean, brides from Japan and China fly all the way to Paris to get their wedding portraits taken on the bridges. Can you just sum up the secret to the romance of the Seine, whether it's in Paris or or out in the countryside? Well, the secret to the romance, especially in Paris, is that the Seine is like a a stage set for all these extraordinary monuments on, on its banks. Okay, you have the Eiffel Tower but you also have the Louvre, you have the Monet de Paris, the Paris Mint, the Institut de France. And so it's it's a, just a place where you want to have your photograph taken. The bridges are very close to the water, so there's an intimate feel. You can almost feel you can touch the water from the bridges. You know, and thinking through all the work I've done in all the great cities of Europe, as many cities turn their back on their river that cuts right through them as face the river. And I think Paris is delightful in the way that it embraces its river. And uh, it's laced together by these romantic bridges, and the skyline is ornamented with these famous spires and uh, inspirational buildings. And uh, while Paris is a big and energized city, there's an intimacy in a human scale when you get down to the river and you enjoy the Seine, the river that made Paris. Elaine, thanks so much for sharing your insights into this river and best wishes with your travel writing. Thank you, Rick.
Do you remember when Elaine Chalino introduced us to her Paris neighborhood along the Rue de Martyr? And what she observed about how the French play the game of life with a little friendly seduction? We have links to Elaine's prior appearances on Travel with Rick Steves with today's show notes. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, it's a look inside Germany to see how one of Europe's leading nations deals with its own issues and how it makes democracy work for their society. What we Americans might call patriotism plays out a little differently in Germany, and that's no thanks to their painful 20th century history. As a leader in the European Union, you could argue that Germany is now one of the most stable democracies in today's world. But the German people aren't always so eager to be in center stage when it comes to world affairs. Still, I think the questions Germany asks itself and how it addresses these issues can provide some hearty food for thought for the rest of us. We're joined now by three German tour guide friends of mine who specialize in showing and explaining their home country to American travelers. Holger Zimmer is a journalist and arts producer for public broadcasting in Berlin. Daniela Vedel was raised in Munich, and now she runs a photography gallery in Provence. And Fabian Reuger was raised in West Berlin during the Cold War and now makes his home in Maine. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. So this is an interesting issue for Europeans, I think, because I know when I proposed this topic, you kind of cringed. Yes, we did. Why did you cringe, Holger? Because I think not only the outside world is looking at Germany, like maybe for leadership, but also the outside world is saying like, oh, Germany is trying to be the bully again of Europe. And that's something, you know, we really have a hard time because all of us in our generation were grown up with the idea of being proud of your country is not such a good thing because we always have this, you know, black shadow of the Holocaust of, you know, 1933 till 45, two world wars on our back in a way. And yes, as I travel, I see a lot of differences and I'm actually happy to live in Germany. It's a great country with wonderful nature and great people and great food. So it's a country that I like in in many respects, but I still find it difficult to kind of look at the German flag and say, Yes, Germany. That to me immediately it says no, no. I'd rather. That's not what I want to say. That's and because it, of your it heritage is, it and, is, and it, your it, recent history. Uh, yeah, it's mixed feelings about it, really. On the other hand, you have the strong economy in Europe. You have a relatively steady governance compared to a lot of countries. Uh, you are a country that is pulling Europe through some complicated and crazy times. I think uh, I can understand that it can be annoying for other Europeans to have to follow German leadership, but somebody has to lead Europe. Um, and I don't know, what do you think, Fabian? I'm not so sure that Europe needs to be led by anything else than a Council of Europeans. I don't think any single nation in Europe can take the lead or should take the lead mm-hmm. because that's something that Europe tried the last 800 the years. It's not the idea of the EU in the first place. But, you know, if you look at who led, mm-hmm. in quotation marks, who led Europe in the past, none of these attempts were ever very good and they always were um, imposing wills of one nation onto another. This new Europe is not about that, which is why calling for leadership by Germany in Europe, uh-huh. which is something you hear very often in the U.S. press, for instance, is exactly the wrong thing to do uh, because, frankly, the word leadership yeah. in German translates to Führung, and that is, of course, you know where Adolf Hitler took his Führer Europe, title Europe from. just doesn't need a so, Führer, especially exactly. a German so, one. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about uh, maybe what we can learn from Germany. We're joined by Daniela Wedel, Holger Zimmer, and Fabian Reuger. And we're talking about German culture and American culture, how Germany deals with challenges that we're confronted with as well. 
There's a, a lot in the news in the United States right now, and I'm just curious, from your German vantage point, what experience you can share with us. In the United States, we have a mass incarceration problem. Uh, more than 1% of our society is locked up. It's 10 times per capita what you have in Germany. What can we learn from Germany's approach to uh, law and order? There is actually a great example for that. There was a California state attorney who traveled to Germany with a couple of fellow Americans to look at the German prison system and find out why the German prison system has a much lower incarceration rate overall and, more importantly, people who are left out of prison again in a much higher percentage rate do not go back into prison okay. later. They don't fall back. But the policy behind German incarceration basically is, okay, you made a mistake, you committed a crime, mm -hmm. for whatever the reason is, you're being locked away, not just as a punishment and not just to save society, but we have to make sure that when you go back out that you will be okay with society and vice versa. And so you need to learn and you will have a television and Prison sentences in Germany these days are very humane. Uh, they are sometimes even to the extent that you can get sentenced to a prison sentence and you're only there for the night, but during the day you can be out. Okay. Um, so it varies on what you, know, what you did and so on, what the particular prison system is, but it's not meant to be a punishment. But the society is much less violent than ours. I mean, we may lose a thousand people a month to gun-related homicides, whereas in Germany it's maybe a hundred or something. Do you have any idea? I mean, far stricter gun laws, but yeah. I think even having said that, of course there are you know, guns on the black market in Germany too, mm -hmm. but if you're out of a job in Germany, you're not hopeless. Right. right. There is a much stronger welfare system that backs you up. Maybe hopelessness is part of the problem that drives people into crime. In the United States, we're dealing with a, a fear of uh, immigrants and refugees coming in from Mexico, and so it's the big discussion. You in Germany have, uh, I think you've absorbed a million refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, Holger, what can we learn from Germany's experience with refugees, if anything? Well, I think that's an ongoing process that hasn't finished yet. And we're just in a, in a similar process of discussion and trying to figure out how can we do it? Because it is it is a number of people with a different background, different culture. But I think we really now openly try, and, and more so than we had maybe in the first generation of immigrants who came in the 60s to work in the factories. And now we're really trying to address the issue of like, okay, what is that integration? How does it work? Can we provide more language uh, courses to have people, give people a chance to be in this country? And also on the other side to tell them, listen, there are some rules that you have to respect here because they're different from maybe where you're coming from. So it's a process of give and take, but I would say still a similar feeling in Germany of being kind of uneasy about how this process will last. Because it's difficult. It's an ongoing, it's, an, it's integration we talk particularly about. It's immigration, of course, there's questions beforehand, why do people leave countries for whatever reason? And then the integration, how to deal. And there, again, it's very difficult to go back to the beginning. Also, the idea of the European Union, the different ideas in the different countries, the different challenges. But I think particularly integration, that has risen a lot of questions and a lot of political powers have become stronger because taking of these advantage questions. You've taken advantage of that. It's uh, a very yeah. easy way yeah. to scare people. Yes. And it works in every country. It works. Right. Um, There's this dynamic yeah. in our country also. Yes. One interesting thing is a big economy like Germany needs the workers, I think. Uh, and I think there's a recognition among refugees that if we can get to Germany, it's like fuel in the tank. We need more people working. 
Is that something that's good for Germany to have more workers or is it does it cause a problem? I don't know because I think also a little bit there is this myth of like once you get to Germany everything will be fine and mm -hmm. you know because there let's face it we do have a very high standard of living a very high standard of healthcare social welfare everything which is great but I don't think it's just like there to take you know it's it's right. it's something that is is there because you know, it is the way the society is organized. And yes, it needs people to uh, fill the system and to pay the taxes and everything, you know. But to have this high standard of living also is, it's always due to something. So there are a lot of reforms that were made in Germany, particularly in the 90s and after the reunification that other countries in Europe have not done yet, for example, France. And mm -hmm. so, so when we talk about unemployment money or unemployment, how it's handled, it's very different in the different countries in the European Union. I'm comparing France and Germany very much. So Germany stands maybe on the paper, they're better as far as unemployment and so on. But because the law is also totally different than in European countries. And so also the question then of it's all connected, of unemployment, mm. yeah. of immigration, of integration, it's all connected together. And the fears that come with it are in all countries the same. Yeah. And so. it's going to keep happening and keep happening. So it's something As long we as we don't solve learn. the problems in the But places where the people the, are leaving from. That's the big uh, challenge, I think. On the reasonable side, though, I mean, economists have pointed out throughout the whole migration crisis that we had on the, over the last three, four years, that in the long run, immigration always pays off. In the long run, it's always better for an economy to take in a huge wave. You have a short-term problem sometimes with integration and how you're going to make it. When the big wave came in in 2016, mm -hmm. I think it was, the prediction was that we Germany cannot handle a million immigrants, that they will mm -hmm. never find jobs. At the beginning of 2019, the German Employers Association put out a statistic that of the over one million refugees that came to Germany, 450,000 are now in jobs or in education programs. And that's a pretty good number if you consider that, you know, there are tens of thousands of children and elderly and so yeah. on that can actually not work. So it's working and it just takes a few more years. But, you know, Germany will work its way through it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Daniela Vedel, Holger Zimmer and Fabian Reuger. We're talking about issues that face Germany and that face the United States. Daniela, Holger, Fabian, I'm just going to say a word because you're guides. You know Americans. You know what our world is. And you, of course, know your world. If there's anything that you think Americans could learn from your way of uh, addressing these challenges, parenting, Holger. Yeah, one thing comes to mind uh, immediately. That's the, some news footage that I saw that, you know, some of the, the kindergartens, like the preschools in America, actually have like surveillance cameras that actually parents can see their kids from home. Like they watch them on TV, like everything is fine. And to me, that, oh, that makes me cringe, you know, I, because if I give my kid, which I do, you know, at home, to a kindergarten, to a preschool. I do trust the people there. They'll do their job and the kids are fine. I don't have to look at them all the time. You know, I presume they're going to be good. And when they come back, they tell me what happened. You know, they tell me their experiences. So that's something I think it can be easy, you know, to just let your kid go play. That's the way we do it. See, we have a word for that. It's called helicopter parenting. We can hover above and keep an eye. You don't have helicopter parenting. We, we do have that too, <laughs> yes. But you have that word, helicopter? Yes, we do. You yeah. do? Okay. Yeah. So healthcare, Daniela, of course, it's a big discussion in the United States about healthcare. How does Germany deal with healthcare? Everyone is um, obligated to have healthcare. Everyone has healthcare. It's not uh, free, so it's, it's not paid free. For. So it's paid by the state. It's paid through taxes. Mm -hmm. um, it's paid by the society. And, What are the um, frustrations? A lot of Americans would say, "Oh, nationalized healthcare. There's uh, there's inefficiency. There's lack of choice. There's what is the argument against it in Germany?" I mean, there's people that would find arguments against it. Sure, that uh, inefficiency. Now, the, the last years there are discussions about two class, three class uh, medical healthcare, 
but uh, in general, I think everyone, even somebody who's unemployed or students yeah. have health care and they are covered through the system, which in the long term is bad because people can actually get treated before it gets really bad, I, uh, the, the illness. It's a good investment. Exactly. You talked about two class. Two class thing. because uh, we do have private health care also. So you can choose. You can pay more to get special care if you got the money. And uh, yes. Yes. Ah, that's like in Britain also, and I, I think that would... It's similar and nevertheless different than in Britain. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. So we do have that, but in general, I think the social um, health care is very good in Germany. The environment. Fabian? Most environmental standards are agreed on now, usually on a, on a European level, actually. Germany is surely politically standing up for a lot of decent environmental regulations, But having said that, they're making mistakes too. So Germans themselves are not 100% happy with what's happening on the environmental level in Germany. But there's very little comparison to what's going on in the United States right now, where you have the whole rollback on Mm -hmm. regulations. Uh, That would be anathema. You were going to lose an election in Germany if you were to attempt to roll back environmental regulations. Is that right? So the society is not only willing to pay for environmental protections, it expects to pay for environmental protections. There's not a a movement among people that want to make more money or have easier jobs by compromising the environment. I I think it's fair to say, by and large, there is no such movement that hopes to have any kind of political success. Wow. Mm -hmm. Taxation. Holger. Well, I think basically our tradition is that we we do have a state government that provides basic services, as we talked about healthcare, as we talked about education, as we talked about good roads and everything. And we kind of believe that, you know, we expect this. The state should be able to do this. You know, we want the state to pave the good roads and to give us a great education, you know. And so in return, we say, well, the state needs some money from us. So we actually are okay. I mean, let's face it, no one really likes to pay taxes in the end. But as a general consensus is, well, we do pay and we get something in return. And that's kind of a kind of a thing, I think that's pretty much agreed on. It's kind of a bargain between the taxpayer and the government. If you use the money smartly, we'll pay the taxes. Yes. Uh, yeah. And apparently the German citizenry figures it's reasonably smartly used. There's yeah. trust, no? Trust. You know, I think trust is like fundamental. There's, there's a like fundamental that. issue trust in good is, governance yeah. with trust. Scandinavia has more trust than anywhere for their institutions, mm-hmm. and it, it makes the society work better. German tour guides Fabian Reuger, Holger Zimmer, and Daniela Vedel are giving us an insight into how things work in Germany right now on Travel with Rick Steves. In the United States, we have a lot of charities. What is the position of charities in German society to raise extra money for good causes? Daniela. I think uh, we have more and more charities now, but uh, nevertheless, I think the state, again, it it goes together with the subject we just said. The state takes over a lot of uh, financial support for projects, for ideas that uh, in the United States you have charities. I remember that for me, it was, for example, the university. I have a friend who um, works in fundraising for a university. And when I asked, and for me, it was this years ago, I asked, so what are you doing? So you are walking around and collect money. <laughs> that was for me the fundraising. It what is that? It was no it was to a totally strange idea for me because I'm used to well, uh, education is publicly uh, supported, financed. It was really a naive answer of my or naive idea, but that's what it is. And it's, now it, we have it more also, of course, charity. But um, 
It's not something the same way handled. Well, Holger, you work in public radio in Berlin. We're, we're a public radio show. Every once in a while, we ask people to help pay for it because it kind of needs public support. It's not paid for by the government, and there's no advertising. What's the public radio situation in Germany? Do you have a pledge drive where people telephone no. in and they get a gift? No, no pledge drives there. Well, because basically the the general line is that, you know, we have this what we call public broadcasting, mm-hmm. which is not state broadcasting, but it's basically funded by the listeners. And in a, in a way, you could argue, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want this because it's kind of mandatory. But basically... Everyone is is uh, obliged to pay a certain amount. Was it like twelve, thirteen, fourteen euros a month towards that public radio? And so basically, it is license fee kind of so uh, money. So you got sort of a BBC, if I relate it to That's England, it. Yeah. and you're paying fourteen euros a month, roughly. So that would be eighteen dollars a month for public broadcasting, TV and radio. TV and in radio and very very diverse radio stations all yeah. across because they have the federal system. So every more or less every Bundesland, every so there's Berlin, there's Bavaria, Munich has their own, or Hamburg. So, and it, they provide a lot. And it's to me, I have to say, not only because I work there and I believe in this, but I really think compared to other standards, also in Europe, we do have a very high standard of journalistic quality. And that's something I really cherish, and I think I'm happy that we do it. But it is debated about here. Yeah. But if you if you throw media to the commercial world it then becomes a victim of what's going to get more clicks, what's going to be sexier, what's going to be more crisis, more hysterical. Absolutely. And it might... It uh, it changes the political discussion, It can shape the viewpoint of your electorate. And Germany has learned the value of having a a smart electorate, I think. And consequently, Germany has strong public media. We still do, yeah. I hope it stays like this. I'm fascinated by the fact that Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. From a German point of view... What's your thoughts on vacation? Fabian. German industry wants you to be productive. The only way to be productive is if you've actually not suffering from burnout, you've actually had a decent vacation in which you really rest. And this is a general philosophy you can hear even from the employers' associations, which means that they're taking vacation seriously. Uh, There are companies now in Germany that are cutting you off from your business email while you're on vacation. And they will tell you, if you get closer to the end of the year and you still haven't taken your vacation, that you must take it. Wow. Um, this is not generally true across the board and everyone. Of course, there are exceptions and so on, right. but this is a general... So this is taking the notion of recreation, recreation, literally, mm-hmm. and from an employment point, employer's point of view, it's a good investment to have people that have had a chance to refresh. Mm-hmm. And you have good vacations. What's the standard vacation in, in Germany for the typical worker? I think four to six weeks. Uh, four to, four to summer. six weeks. Yeah. yeah. And if you're burned out, do you still get uh, time in the Black Forest? No, that's, that's, <laughs> that's difficult now. Yeah, that's yeah. difficult. No, a good old day. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was always amazed at that. Oh, yeah. you look so tired. Cool. Why don't you take two weeks yeah, at the cool 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 the spa? The spa. Well, I could use a little time in a spa, but right now I just want to thank you guys so much for sharing. Daniela Vidal. Holger Zimmer and Fabian Reuger. Thanks a lot and uh, best wishes in your guiding. Thank you. Thank Vielen Dank. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan Wilner, and Kazmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amara Kitnikone and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to Robert Frazier at Feature Story News in Washington for studio help this week. You can hear how the German guides compare driving beer and bread in the U.S. with Germany in an extra to this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio.
Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, plus the Low Countries, and nearly every other corner of Europe. Learn more at ricksteves.com.